Maloe Lele and welcome to episode 14. Nina Keitane Tinoro is of Ngati Maniapoto Whakapapa. She was born and raised in Ototahi Christchurch before moving to Auckland at age 19. Here, she became a peep show dancer and a stripper, working in the sex industry for four years. She also had an addiction to drugs and alcohol. She isn't one to shy away from this period in her life. In fact, she talks about it openly to help other wahine know the realities of this industry. Today, the mama of three is proudly 18 years sober. She is a managing director of a music production company and record label. She manages one of our greatest musicians. She's also one of only two people in Aotearoa who instructs comedic yoga, and she is a co-facilitator of women's safety programs. In this episode, we talk about her journey, from the dark parts of her youth, through to her experience with domestic violence, to the light parts of her adulthood, sharing with us her time with the Lakota people, as she, along with other Māori wahine, performed a haka in solidarity against the North Dakota Access Pipeline. She also shares how she's using her platforms to inspire, motivate and empower Indigenous women. Whakarongo mai. Kia ora, I'm Kiani. You know, we live in a media-saturated world, but we're not exactly drowning in our stories. We all know Indigenous storytelling started in the stars, but like a night without stars, there was a blank space where our stories should have been shining. So I invite you to come and hang out with me and some kick-ass Indigenous wahine. See how the world can be shaped by our voice, the unique picture that we see. Let us share who we are and not who we've been told to be. No mai, hide mai, and welcome to Nuku. Thank you for inviting us to your whare today. Um, thank you for coming. Oh, <laughs> and it's lovely to meet your tamariki and your new mokopuna. Wow, 12 yes. weeks old, eh? What's the last few months been like being a nanny? Um, pretty amazing. Yeah, mm-hmm. lovely, beautiful, natural. Feels great. Yeah. How how different is it? Because you're a first time nanny. Mm-hmm. How different is it from being a mama? Um. Well, not. It's it's the same. It feels the same, except I'm not so hands on. So it's just that little bit um more on the periphery in terms of I'm not breastfeeding baby yeah. but I'm still supporting my daughter with the breastfeeding and all that kind of thing. So it's um. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> it really is. Um, now, Nina Kay, I want to know where your name came from because oh. it's it's a different name and it's not one that you hear around the place. True, true. Does it have a particular meaning or has it come from somewhere different? Um, well, really, so I was named, so it's two separate names which I joined together once I went to college. But um, so I was always Nina. I was named after my father's father's sister. So his favourite auntie, um, Auntie Nina. I shouldn't say favourite, eh? You get in trouble for saying that. But <laughs> um, uh, an auntie that he was raised with, that he spent a lot of time with when he was um, younger. So, and she's still alive, Nini Nin, we call her. Um, so I was named after her. <clears throat> I grew up knowing that, but because I didn't know her, it sort of didn't really sink in for me, the importance of it. Mm. 
and um and you know my middle name was K which didn't really affect you know it sort of wasn't even on the radar when I was younger but once I came through primary school I used to get teased all the time and particularly by the boys you know they'd go Nina 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 <laughs> and um, there was this other thing it was um you know there'd, there'd be poems about me and there was Nina, ugly ballerina, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. So I think I got to college and just thought, this is a clean break for me. I'm leaving primary school behind. I'm going to college. I'm going to put K on Nina and join it together and become Nina K. Mm. So, and it's sort of stuck ever since. Yeah. 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 And you grew up down in Ototahi? Yes. Yep. So born and raised... Born and raised, yep, spent 19 years down there until I sort of wanted to explore. And, um, yeah, so that's that's home for me, really, even though my father is from Ngāti Maniopoto, so, and, and Waikato, we have connections here as well. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so when you grew up, um, well, when you, when you were growing up in Christchurch, what was that experience like for you? Um, was it, I mean, I've spoken to a number of different Māori and Pacifica people who've grown up in Christchurch, and it's quite different to growing up in somewhere like Tāmaki Makoto, where it's quite an ethnically diverse community. Um, and, I mean, what was Christchurch like? Um, well, I, I think the you know, when you don't know anything else, it sort of just is what it is. But on um, reflection, I look back now, and especially with recent events, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of what's just happened. You know, we're so fresh from the um, the shooting down there. Um, you know, we the community that we were raised into is called Heathcote Valley. Now, that was quite a unique community. It was majority Pākehā. There was one street which all the Māori lived on, and that was the where the railway houses were. Mm. Yeah, so, but we, as, because my mother's Pākehā, and we weren't railway whānau, Dad came through Rehua Marae, he was a panel beater, but we weren't part of the railway whānau, so, who typically had two Māori parents. So we kind of lived in between sort of thing, <laughs> you know. Mm. Um, and the other unique thing about Heathcote is that we had another... We had a community, we had a lot of hippies there because there were a lot of orchards and um, and we also had um, these, there were a lot of um, whānau from a, they're called the subud, which I believe is like a, a religion. Um, so there were a lot of subud um, whānau and tamariki there. Um, and so, yeah, it was kind of, it was quite diverse, but mostly Pākehā. And... <clears throat> I mean, we just learnt to kind of adapt to whoever we were with in the moment. That's mm. sort of how it had to be for us, I think, as a um, as a bit of a survival technique. Because often we'd find ourselves with Pākehā only, and uh, other times we'd find ourselves with Māori only, and then sometimes we might be in a subud home. You know, so it was kind of like just having to sort of be a bit like a chameleon at times, but at the same time knowing that you're different and knowing that they're looking at you different. Didn't matter which of those groups, mm. even with our Māori whānau, we were diff- different. 
Did you have quite a sheltered childhood? Uh, in some ways, definitely. Sheltered from um, from what it means to be Māori in terms of growing up in a um, Māori community. So I feel like we were, sh- we were sheltered from being a part of a, a, a hapu, being, um, sh- we were sheltered from marae because we, you know, we didn't grow up in our father's rohe. So um, we looked to dad for for our connection to being Māori, but because he was so far away from home, he himself didn't really know how he stood anymore. So Rehua Marae was really the closest thing to um, to a Māori community that we had. Um, and then Nga Hauwe Marae, which is an urban Marae down there that dad was involved in. But, um, yeah, I think I believe we were sheltered in that sense. And saying that our mother was very, our mother is and was very um, open and independent, encouraged independence. And as a result, we would um, get out there and, you know, sort of fuck up a with all sorts of people and get involved <laughs> with all sorts of things. And, mm. yeah, so we weren't sheltered in that sense at all. And so at 19... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you you moved. Yeah, yeah. And I did. you went up to Tamaki? I went to Tamaki, yeah. Um I did actually mum reminded me that she that my Fano drove me up there. Oh wow. Yeah, they um I can't even really remember the details, but my I had a, a brother, a younger brother, mum when my, after mum and dad separated, um we we had a little brother called um, Anaru, and he had cerebral palsy. Mm. He actually lived till he was six, so he lived a lot longer than they thought he was going to. But um, he came as well. And I remember I was thinking the other day how neat that was actually that Anaru came on that trip. And yeah, so my whanau, my my sister and her tāne, uh, my niece, they all drove me up to Auckland dropped me off on Fort Street pretty much or Custom Street and um, said goodbye, you know, that was it. So, What was your plan? What were you in search for? Uh, well, I actually had been offered an opportunity by a, a friend, female friend. Um, I don't know, something about being down in Christchurch, you know, and only seeing the same things but knowing that, the rea- that my reality was that, you know, I came from a large whānau, dad, Dad's mother had eight birthed eighteen children all up, wow. you know, and wow. um, you know they didn't all survive, but mm. I just knew that, that 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 there was a lot of whānau out there for me to meet, and I wanted to know what that felt like to be around people who kind of look like me, sound like me, and are uh, my cousins, you know, and my aunties and uncles, and that was the ultimate thing for me. But I also felt like maybe I wasn't ready for that whatever that reality was and um you know I'd been in the music industry for for years I'd been in the punk scene for years since I was about 15 16 and I just wanted to see what else was out there for me you know what else what else what, what's going on in the rest of the the country or um so yeah and I'd got offered this opportunity by a friend of mine she said if you come up here I've got a place you can stay. I've got a a job for you. You know, I've got transport. Um, and I thought, well, hey, you know, mm. why not? So, 
the opportunity, I mean, you, you do talk about this publicly mm. and it's something that not many people talk about publicly because there's mm. this, um, well, I guess shame that comes with it or there's this whakama. There's, there's also uh, some trauma that can come with these types of conversations and some memories that people have that they want to suppress. But you came up here and you started working in the sex industry. Mm, So what what was the mahi you were doing at 19 years old? Yeah, so I, um, you know, I remember it was like it was yesterday really. I... My friend took me into the um, this little place on Fort Street and um, s- sort of said, "Well, all you got to do is dance." And, and I was like, "Really?" And she said, "Yeah." And she took it was, so it was a peep show establishment, and um, I don't even know if they really exist anymore. I think they might have been replaced by the internet or something. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it was um, basically, you know, in a little room. Typically, it's sort of like three by three, maybe a little bit bigger, usually. Um, and often there's a pole in there, just as some sort of prop. And um, and you usually some really tacky sort of lights, you know. <laughs> and um, yeah, you basically there's booths. There are booths built around the outside of it. And it's dancing, usually it was for three songs, was how you measured one show. So um, people, I say people because it's not, it wasn't always men that would come in and do it and, and um, use the service. Sometimes the women would. But people would come in, pay $15 usually or $20, and they would get this song, which was, uh, get the show, sorry, which was three songs. And during that time, I've I'm dancing around and need to have taken all my clothes off by the end of it. Wow. Yeah, and they and there's a little hole. They so they're sitting in a booth each, sitting on a chair, and there's a little hole, and they can feed tips into it if should they wish to. Um, and then, as the dancer, as the one who receives the tips, you decide whether you're going to do anything more elaborate or anything more whatever, you know, um, for the money or whether, you you know, you just finish the show um, however you see fit. And, yeah, so it's like a um, a two-way mirror so that they – or is it – So they can see you but you can't see them. In in theory, the idea is that you can't see them, but I found that my eyes became like – I sort of developed X-ray vision where Mm. I could see but um, yeah, so it was a bit of a play. It was an interesting, um, it was an interesting sort of psych- psychological um, position to be in, where you've got to behave like you can't see anybody, and you're just looking at yourself. But actually, you can see them. Yeah. How how did you feel at that time? So. I mean, because how you feel now mm. with years more wisdom and, and knowing and experience, um, you'd have a different, possibly a yes. different opinion to that time. How mm. did you feel at that time? Did you think that it was a good idea? Was it good money? Mm. I just, it, it felt like a means to an end at the time. Mm. I um, had left school at the age of 16, only just fresh 16, so in sixth form. And that was after months of, you know, because I I shifted from an all-girls school, which my mother and my 
grandmother and my sister and my auntie had gone to <laughs> called Avonside Girls. I'd gone from that to Hagley College, which was an adult adolescent school. So we'd be sitting in the classroom with adults and it was very creative and there was no uniform. And, you know, I'd end up drinking at lunchtimes in the Hagley Park across the road. So it was kind of, you know, I was, I'd been going off track for a while and then I basically just left school got into drugs, um, was drinking a lot, was in the punk scene in Littleton. And, you know, I got into dysfunctional relation relationship. I had two dysfunctional relationships and um, one after the other, back to back. And so after the second one ended, I was pretty low. I was very, I was depressed, you know, mm. and I just was like, what the heck? what is there for me really in this in this life and then that was like an opportunity you know and um <clears throat> but it was also a survival thing because I genuinely didn't really know how I was going to survive um in terms of the basics um food and you know and I'd already <clears throat> kind of isolated myself from my whanau mostly anyway which was easy to do because mum and dad had separated and mum was very occupied, preoccupied with my little brother with cerebral palsy. So I I distanced myself anyway, but I think at that time, yeah, it was a means to an end. There was a little bit of excitement around it, you know, thinking maybe, maybe something really great could come of this, like I actually thought maybe. Because, you know, down on Fort Street back then, there was a lot of lights and action and, you know. Um, big city. Big city, mm. yeah. Um, but there was also, I think deep down, there was this knowing that, shit, what am I getting myself into? What really, you know. Did your whanau know what you were doing? Yeah, they did. Um, to be honest, I'm not sure. I'd have to talk to mum again. I will do that actually and ask you uh, whether they knew right when they were dropping me off what I was doing, whether I'd actually disclosed to them at that point. But along the way, once I started working, I was so transparent about it mm. that I would tell anyone and everyone, you know, if they asked or, you know, if they asked, what do you do? I would tell them or where do you work? I would tell them. Um, and same with when, cause then I ended up coming back down to Christchurch to do it as well for a bit and same again to the point where I would stand outside the peep shows or I'd lean in the doorway and, and people could see me, you know, on my breaks, I'd just be, I didn't have a problem with it. I just wasn't ashamed of it. Yeah. Did it ever go beyond that? Did you ever get any deeper into the industry where it actually turned into physical contact with clients? Uh, no, there was plenty of opportunity to, plenty of encouragement to, but I always drew the line. And there were risky moments where we had private dances, where we were expected to do private shows. If someone came in and wanted one, usually they would pay $40. And what that meant was that they could actually sit in the room and you were doing a one-on-one show with them. And those were times where... You know, it was pretty risky. Even once I started dancing in the strip clubs, it was the same thing. Um, where there may be, it may have been an expectation that you touch or you allow them to touch. But um, I quickly learned that, you know, it was that was a more of a thing of actually 
consent for uh, no, I don't want you to touch me and I don't want to touch you. So, mm. um, but yeah, there were some pretty touch and go times, but it was always good to know that there was a security. We always had one, at least one security person around. So, but because yeah. would it have been safe? I mean, I guess that's the other mm. thing because there is, you know, yes, okay, there's security, um, but is that, well, was that industry in your time, mm. was it safe? Not really, no, it wasn't safe. And, you know, the fact that there were underage girls and it was common knowledge that we knew that that girl mm. was only 14. Oh. You know, when we were working in the strip clubs, everyone knew, everyone who worked there, and it was just like, and we, and if the police came in, we would hide her, stuff like that. I mean, that's unsafe in itself. And mm. then the fact that she was actually just a child, that girl, and um, and men would be propositioning her knowing that she was a child. And, uh, you know, stuff like that. That, that. So there's unsafety on that, on that way. But then also on the peep shows, if the doorman decided to, and this would often happen, decided, oh, he's just going to duck out and get himself feed <laughs> <laughs> while you're in a private show, Far out. he would shut the door, lock it, and put a sign on it saying, back in five, you know, and you'd sort of have this thing go down with a guy in the room and then be like, oh, my God, you know, and you come out and you're locked in there because the doorman's buggered off for mm. feed, so... Yeah, you know, so I mean, it wasn't it wasn't safe really at all. A lot of um, <laughs> I want to say a lot of us, but I wouldn't even have a clue. I'm speaking on behalf of myself because there could probably be people who have way more knowledge and experience about peep shows and strip clubs and and brothels and things like that. And I might just be really naive, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people, I'm assuming, definitely mm -hmm. myself have only really experienced these things on TV mm -hmm. or in movies. Yeah. And you kind of see two sides to it. You see um, uh, one side of it where, you know, the girls are always looked after and there's kind of like a mama in there who's who's the mama mm. to all the girls and and the bouncers or the security are really, you know, really well at looking after these girls and, and they get um, – it's like a, a – good lifestyle for them. That, that's sort of the one side of the movies that you see. And the other side of the movies that you see is the complete opposite where you're seeing women being abused and you're seeing women being raped and um, attacked and people following them home and um, lots of violence mm -hmm. and, and things like that. In, in Aotearoa, do we have one or the other? Do we have mm -hmm. both? What? I mean, what does the situation actually look like? And yeah. Knowing that you've been out of that space for a little while, so what mm. was it like? I think it's a it's a fine line. Um, there's there's a whole lot of fine lines going on, and those lines can be crossed at any stage. And you know, there is um, there is a, a hierarchy system that exists within the New Zealand sex industry, or at least there was back then, and I, I get the feeling it really wouldn't have changed much. Um, there is a hierarchy system, and usually it's the ones who own the clubs who um, are in the position of power, mm. and often they may... You, you tend to find that someone who owns a club may also own parlours, 
and um, so they may they have a bit of a monopoly. It's almost like the music industry <laughs> where we have a promoter <laughs> who's like starting to put on all the festivals. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a similar thing, but um, and they are the ones who had the monopoly weren't weren't really, and I'll just say it, they weren't really very nice people. And um, these men, and and then you might have ones who come along who are newer ones who want to give it a go, and I've seen that happen, and they're usually families. It might be a husband and wife who come in quite naively, thinking, "Oh yeah," and I've seen some terrible things happen to their families as a result. And um, yeah, because it's sort of the underworld, then it's it, there's there's. It means that there's a whole lot of um, contact with other underworlds and they all kind of, you know, you've got the drug scene, you've got um, all all that kind of stuff going on as well. And so they all rub shoulders with each other and because they all exist under that same, mm. that same world. And the, the whole thing of... Um, it, was all, it was kind of like you were owned in a way. Um, like I never felt, I, I was always quite staunch against that. Like you don't know me, <laughs> you know, no, no one owns me. Mm. But there was this whole vibe of, oh, she's one of his girls, um, you know. And then if he came in, because often your boss would drop into the peep show or the club, and there was almost an expectation, oh, you're just going to give him a show for free, or if he drops in and says, oh hey, you don't have to work this shift, I'm going to take you out and for dinner instead, you know. There was mm. that, that kind of stuff would go on. Um, or I'm going to take you for a drive. I mean, I had that happen where I felt like I had to go for a drive on one of my shifts with the boss and then, you know, he got fresh with me. And, you know, it was almost like there was this expectation that he owns you, you work for him, therefore you will, um, you're at his disposal. A little bit. I had heard a lot of horror stories about women getting abused, uh, raped um, by the boss or by the staff, male staff. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's very very real. Same with massage parlors. You know, the girls uh, g- getting viewed as being, you know, property and and um, sexual property. Yeah. Mm. During that time of your life, you've you know you've already mentioned, and again, it's something that you're not shy to talk about, is um, your experiences with drug, drugs and alcohol. And you've now been sober for eighteen years. Coming up eighteen wow. next month. Congratulations! Thank you. <laughs> um, how how bad did it get? Um. I, it's it's a funny one, eh? Because again, I always I always think it's a fine line because I I look at my mates now and I think, yeah, that was me, really. It was me, but I was just doing it all the time. Mm. So it's a it's, it's it's a difficult one to judge, and especially when you're in it, because when you're in it, your brain's not in your body, eh? You know, you you're not really conscious of what you're actually doing. Often, it's only in retrospect or through third party that you realise how bad your situation is. But um, really it was just drinking every single night, um, especially working in the clubs because you would have, um, you could have a couple of drinks free every night. So it sort of encouraged alcoholism. And then you would have people come in. Once you had a couple, you started getting a bit, you know, ooh, 
yeah, well, you know, wouldn't mind some more. And then some guy offers to buy you drinks. drinks. Yeah. Mm. And so, you know, before you know it, you're intoxicated. The drug side of things, I had been, a, I would, had dabbled in drugs since I was about 14 was when I first got stoned on marijuana. And then my boy, first boyfriend, he, um, his father had, um, had an endless supply of hashish and marijuana. So we used to just, it was just a regular part of our lives. And then from there it was um, experimenting with things like mushrooms and datura and LSD. But once I became um, a, a stripper, so not working in the peep shows because I was in isolation during that time. Mm. That was a very isolated time of my life. But once I started working in the strip clubs, that's when, um, chemical drugs came into play, so things like speed and cocaine, and yeah, so mainly it was speed for me. I got quite hooked on speed and started to believe that that's what I needed to get through my shift and to keep me awake. And, and how easily accessible is that? Oh, it was real it was easy like, back then. Yeah. yeah, I mean, all the, a lot of the girls had it, and you you know you could either buy it through out the back you know in our um, changing room you could buy it off one of the girls or one of their mates would come up and you could just pop out and see them or um or they'd just give you a line you know you just share lines and mm. stuff like that so it was pretty much just part of the whole scene yeah and what pulled you out of all of that <laughs> um I, 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 to this day, I don't really know what it was, but I, I liken it to a calling, you know, I hear people say, oh, I got a calling. Well, I, that was what happened for me. Mm. Yeah. Was I got a calling and I, um, I think it was also the, 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 the at one point I realized that I was able to identify that what I was doing in the strip clubs was I was thinking that some guy was going to come come in like a knight in shining armor on his horse and just sort of gallop on in and go there she is <laughs> like a nice guy in the wrong place and sees you and saves you that's the movies exactly <laughs> that's those movies i was just talking about <laughs> i must have seen some movies but i was like yeah it's gonna happen and it, it never did and that's mm. when i realized this is never gonna happen because even these hunky guys who come in they're still dicks you know there's <laughs> And they're not like, they might, you know, they're not like, you're the one, I'm in love with you. They're just like, yeah, get her off, baby. So I was like, okay, this isn't happening. Throwing I bills to. at your feet. Yeah. But I ended up going down to visit my, my grandfather, actually. And that's what, the, the thing that I attribute to what pulled me out was the story he told me about my name. Yeah, and so that story um, hit home for me, and I likened myself to her. So he, yeah, he he told me that my name was Hinerangi because Nanny Nin's name is Nina Hinerangi. So that's when he he said to me, "That's your name, Hinerangi," and then he told me about her, and um, I realised that I um, was living a, a parallel to her. I, 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 it resonated so much for me that I believed that I, I suddenly found purpose, mm. you know, a, de- a purpose and went, wow, I'm actually named after this woman who did this thing, you know, and, and that's, um, that's my, that's my journey too. And I, I want to, I want to honor that, 
So even though I was in my still in my drug drug kind of state, I, it was enough it hit home enough that when I got back to Auckland after spending some days with my grandfather in Waitomo, first time I, I'd ever spent time with him like that, um, it was enough for me to go, yeah, I'm done. Mm. It was like a light bulb, you know. I went, wow. And I just quit every. I quit it. I quit the jobs. And um, I got out of there. Yeah. And and so the you know following that, um, I know that you have worked in film and TV, and you've worked in event management and in public research and in water and in fitness. And you're a music manager. Um, and it's not about him, but you're a music manager for your brother, who some people might know, and his name is Tiki, and you know, he's a <laughs> yeah. little bit of a somebody in Aotearoa. Um, <laughs> um, and you, you sort of, you've gone on to do all these really amazing things, and you've you've got three beautiful tamariki, but actually that wasn't the end um, mm. of some of the negativity and in, in and I want to say abuse because we'll just call it call it as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, that happened in your life, mm. and um, I guess you experienced something that a lot of wahine experience that even to this day get swept under the carpet, get have excuses made for, um, and it's something that is really prominent in Aotearoa and that's domestic abuse mm-hmm. what happened ah yeah <laughs> um you know it's yeah it's it, this is one of the things we don't talk about you know and I I appreciate you for bringing it up because I, I I haven't I don't really talk about it, but I'm I'm prepared to talk about it because you know I talk to my children about it, mm. and I and so if I, I I figure my children are my my moral compass and my my um the legacy that I want to leave with my children is that we can talk about anything and everything. Um, domestic violence is such a multi-dimensional um, reality. And when you're in it, you don't often realise you're in it or you don't yeah, – you, 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 it's it's the not being able to put voice to, to it because you're not really sure. Mm. And especially when it comes to psychological abuse, emotional abuse, you – because it's involving your mind and your psyche, it's a very, very confusing reality. Um, and especially if you're some of the um, tactics, I guess, that you are um, that you're under are involve you being made to feel responsible for somebody else's behaviour. So it is. It's a very um, yeah. But you know, I. I, I don't know where to start because if we're looking at my most re- recent relationship with the father of my three children, that's 16 years of it, you know. So I, I don't, it's, it's hard to sum that up. I guess my question is um, 
And it's not a question that's asked really lightly. Mm. But the question is, how can you stay? Yeah. Because <laughs> that's often a question that is asked of Wahine when, when, when we talk about these sorts of things. And I guess um, physical abuse, you can see the mm-hmm. hurt. Mm-hmm. You have a bruise or you have a, you have a broken bone or you have a something like that. Psychological and emotional abuse, you can't always see. Mm-hmm. And when you reach out for help, people can't always see that in you. Mm-hmm. But knowing that and knowing you have your tamariki with you, um, yeah, how, what goes through your mind mm-hmm. that keeps you there? Keeps you there. Yeah, you know, I'm re- I'm really privileged to work with uh, women who are in domestic violence situations now. That's my mahi that I do is uh, women's safety groups, um, and it's re- I learn so much every week about them, about myself, about domestic violence. The reality is that um, oftentimes we, again, if we don't really realise we're in it is one thing um and we just keep coming back to the positives in our mind oh no 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 this is normal perhaps I grew up with this as a role you know I've seen this I've lived it already my parents were like this you know there's that side of it of of it actually being normal Mm. um and and then there's another side of it where maybe you didn't grow up with it but you be- have you believe that it's only temporary, and you're a- you're going to be able to fix this, mm. you know, or you've got this this image. You know what you want, and that is for this beautiful relationship, um, where and it's healthy and it's safe and. You're, you see yourselves sitting side by side in rocking chairs, you know, with your, your tāne or whoever it is, wahine. But, um, and so you, you, you can't let go of that image and you're determined that you're going to be able to navigate your way through this with the, the, the other half and get to that place. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a product. My, my, my mother and father. They, fortunately, there was no domestic violence in our upbringing. But I know for my father, his parents, that there, there were, there was, um, and and Nana just put up with it. You know, mm. and and that's just how it was. You know, it's your, it's your lot. It's your bed. You lie in it. You know, he's your tani. He's the father of your children. You just stick it out and stick it out and stick it out. So, um, and that's a really common reality, and that's there's a cycle that we get caught in too, um, where we keep t- because and and often because often it's not addressed within the relationship. So, say an an incident occurs, say um, the I might get um, choked or punched punched or whatever. You know, it might be a full on ordeal. And then my tani might leave after that, and um, and I'm at home trying to process that and 
deal with that trauma and deal with my children. And then the next day he just walks back in as if nothing's happened, Mm. you know, and it's kind of like, and then there's this moment where you're like, well, how do I even begin to address what just happened when it could happen again if I do that? So there is this cycle of fear Mm. that you sort of live under, which is very real, very real. But then there's also the whole thing of it's not even going to, I don't know how to address this. He's certainly not going to take leadership and address it when he's not even going to acknowledge what he's done. And um, and so, oh, well, the best thing I can do is just kind of carry on as if. Yeah, let life, it go as, yeah, move on. Just focus on my tamariki, you know, get their lunches sort of for school and just kind of, mm. you know, so-and-so needs togs and blah, blah, and we're going to go to the pools and just all that kind of stuff. And um, and and then just, you know, later on, see my tāne, I'm really hurt, I'm just, I'm in shock, I'm frightened, but I want to keep the peace for my whānau. And it, it's sort of this cycle that just goes on and on and on and on and on, because then it happens again. You did, know. did other people ever kind of step in and, and recognise it on your behalf? Did your friends and whānau step in? Cause, and the reason why I ask that is because um, often – if friends and whanau do see these things, mm. they find, well, it is quite hard to get involved because, yeah. again, it's not your relationship. Mm. You want to protect your whanau member. Um, and there's that fine line of, you know, telling them that their tāne is wrong or their tāne is this mm. or, or their wahine, you know, it's mm-hmm. not just tāne, but um, that their partner is doing these things and there's this fine line where you could just push that person more towards them mm-hmm. rather than convince them to seek some support. Absolutely. I think, um, yeah, I mean, definitely people try to intervene in different ways. I have friends who try to intervene and I've had whānau try and intervene and um, pretty much every time I just... I turned them away, you know, I found a way to turn them away and mainly because again, I was holding on to this thing of one, one thing is it could make it worse, you know, and um, I didn't want that. I didn't want it to be worse. And then the other thing is, no, 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 I, I, this is my shit. I've got to, I have to um, fix this my, myself, you know, I mean, to be honest, even talking about it now, there's there's risk. You know, there's a, that, that's the reality of domestic violence. There's always risk, um, but I'm not afraid of that risk anymore. Even after the relationship, um, there's risk. There was there, there was risk afterwards, and that I lost my children. You know, and this is so. This is the reality, and because I always I had always been told that I was going to lose my children by my by um my tani well it was uh there were threats around that and so when you're getting threatened like that mm. you sort of you know you, you tread quite cautiously and then sure enough it happens well of course it was going to happen he he told me he was going to do that mm. and then he did that you know and um so it doesn't just stop when you have when you find the courage and the strength and the means to actually end the relationship and leave is still it's not over it's it's far from being over and this is the reality and that's what we you know every week at in my abuse intervention work that I'm very um lucky to 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 do um 
we see it where and and we know that that's the reality. These mm. women are going to leave these relationships. Life is not necessarily going to get easier. It's more like get your belt on. It's going to get really rocky. Yeah, it's now going to begin. Yeah. But the wonderful thing is that you've got your freedom, eh? You've got your freedom. It's going to get really rocky. You're going to get all sorts of things are going to happen. He's probably going to um, escalate his behavior. He's going to try all sorts of other things because he can no longer get at you behind closed doors. So be prepared and be ready that you're going to get knocked around in other ways, new ways that you never even imagined through your children, through your family, through your community. All sorts of things can happen. But you've got your freedom and you're going to get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And so that's the um, the message really mm. for women or for anyone who's in that situation. During that time, um, I know that, so during the time when, you know, you didn't have your tamariki, mm. uh, which you now do. Mm-hmm. So we'll just say that <laughs> yes. there is, you know, there are positives that come out at the other end. Um, but during that time, you took a hikwe to parliament. Yes, yes, yes. Um, what was that about? Um, so, you know, being in the family court system all of a sudden um, and sort of seeing what actually goes on in there, mm. I just thought, just realised how how terrible it is. Devastating. What a terrible system. Mm. Shocking system. Um and, you know, it almost, um, it's a system that almost allows domestic violence to to continue. Wow. Yeah, and it, it's separate to, um, it's separate to the criminal system. So if there is um, issues around abuse um, in terms of that, you know, um, like if there's violent crime that's occurred or whatever, it doesn't f- sort of factor into the family court system. So it's quite messed up, and so, and what, and because it's um, the system is run by men, you know, most of the judges are men, mm. and there are women in there too, but you know, questionable some of their uh, their their perspectives and views. So it's it's almost like a it's, it's almost like you can be victimised just by being by being. A woman in that within that system. So the hikoi was about taking a stand against that system and hopefully just sort of um, putting a bit of a shining a bit of a light on some of the terrible um, practices that it upholds. For example, that one parent can go into the family courts and as long as they have possession of the children. Um, as in they literally physically are with them, with their children, then they can go into the family courts and put down an order and and have 100% custody from that minute, which is what wow. happened to me, you know. So in theory, someone could go and kidnap their children from school or wherever, go into the family court and put down an order and the, the other parent won't see them for a long time and is, is, won't be able to have contact and then you've got to go through the system to get rights back yes. to parent, which children. is a very long, arduous, traumatic process. Mm. And um, so, yeah, it's it's very messed, very messed up indeed. So that's what that hikoi is about. Was asking for a review of the system. Um, the great thing is that it did. It is happening. There is actually a review happening at the moment. So 
Kapai, yes, you. that's good. Yeah, well, and the wahine that that yeah. went on that hikoe with you. Yeah, a lot of people have fought for it for years, so we were really just helping to push it over mm. the, the edge. I think. Yeah. Um, it kind of is a really nice segue into the other, <laughs> the other kind of activism advocacy mahi that you have been involved in, and one, um, one that sort of went a bit viral. <laughs> was your hikoi that you took to Standing Rock. Um, and, of course, that was around the, uh, the, the North Dakota Access Pipeline mm-hmm. um, and the, the mana whenua of that rohe mm-hmm. not wanting uh, that pipeline to go through their whenua and to, um, in essence, destroy not only their land but their waterways. Mm-hmm. And what motivated you to go over there um, and why did you choose to go and haka? Because the haka mm. that you did uh, with a number of other wahine um, was what ended up going viral in the Māori world, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, so just throughout the years of, um, I mean, I was, I, was like, I, I went through a program years ago called Amor, which was um, – run by Te Wānanga or Aotearoa. It was actually Bentham Ohia's program called Amo, which was um, the ambassadorship of Māori opportunity or something like that. Mm. But it was about, it was about, it taught us, those of us who were, um, who went through it, and there were, I think there was only about four years of us that went through, and you had to be nominated to do it 30 at a time. So it was Bentham Ohia, Leanne, Spurling months and um, and Bentham's wife Kate were the main ones kind of facilitating it. That taught us to go and to place importance on indigenous relationships on amongst First Nations people. Um, and so, so I had had been since doing that program. I'd wanted to go and start building relationships and so every time I went overseas with our kapahaka or with my brother or whoever I was like right gotta find the local hokainga you know Mm. and um so it was like this fire that burns burns within me and we, I'd been to. We went to Las Vegas, our kapahaka, and I had um te Manga Tafiri. Yeah, it took me a while, but I found the local people there, and there's not many of them. The Paiute, Las Vegas Paiute, and had also been put onto this other, um, this other um tribe called Moapa Paiute, and was lucky enough to go and visit them. I've, I'd watched a documentary on what was happening in their uh, reservation around this coal plant and how it was killing people, local people. And so my friend from Las Vegas, Paiute, took me there and I met William Anderson, who was a local, he was a spokesperson for the Moapa Paiute Hapu. And we built this relationship because I was quite, I really wanted to meet him in particular, not only because I'd watched him, he presented the story on the documentary that I watched, but because he was an Anderson and back home in Manyaputu, we were the Andersons, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I wanted him to know that <laughs> even though we've got these Pākehā names, we still, we're family, you know, yeah. it was quite funny. But um, so after I came home from Las Vegas, he sent me a message and he said, sister, there's terrible things happening over here um, in North Dakota and we need support. Would you consider writing a letter 
to support, to show support, solidarity from New Zealand, mm. from the Māori. And I was like, well, I can't do it on behalf of all of Māori, <laughs> but I can certainly do it for my family. You know, I thought that's the quickest way to do this because they needed it really quickly. So I just did it from tiki, from our tiki dub whānau yeah. and, um, and descendants of my father, you know, because I can do that, that's fine. Um, sent this letter and kind of also photographed it and posted it on Facebook and tagged people in and kind of wanted to get a bit of um, exposure to what was going on. And, yeah, that kind of got a little bit of a response, you know. I was like, oh, good, you know, good. This is great. We can start to use really use the internet to show our solidarity as First Nations people who share the same issues and and same atrocities are occurring in all of our our, um, kāinga. And then I started thinking about, I wouldn't mind going over to that place. And my friend Fawn from Las Vegas Paiute, William Anderson's cousin, she had already been over there. And I thought, oh, it feels like it's getting closer and closer. It's going to happen. And then next minute, Benita rang me, Sister B, Mm. who was going with Te Hāmua, Anyway, and she said, Sus, um, we want to invite you to come with us as part of our, our little posse that are going over. And I just jumped at her. I said, yes, please, because I'd already been looking at flights. So that was how that came about. And, um, yeah, the haka was, it wasn't, we learnt the haka on the way there. Te ha- that's Te Hamua's haka that he composed. Um you know, I'm pretty amateur when it comes to kapahaka. I never really thought I would end up doing it. It's certainly not um, by, you know, just a small group of women. I thought, if anything, we back the boys up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it just came firing out that day mm. and um, certainly didn't know that it was being filmed. Um, thought thought that we were in a very um, intimate, isolated um, kind of um, scenario, but actually our brother Matafiro had been following us with a camera. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's – but that felt like the right thing to do, clearly, you know, um, at the time. We wanted to – it was more for us about going down to the front line in a ceremonial kind of way. Um because there had been all these different ways of going down, going down in anger and it was raised voices, going down in prayer with eyes closed. You know, people have been going, everyone had been going in different ways and all those ways had their, had a, had, had an effect. But we, we just felt like, yep, we can go down there and, um, and just, and go, but, and go down there in a certain way and um, see what unfolds for us as three Māori women in arms with three women of Turtle Island or of, of America. So six sisters, you know, in mm. arms and see what unfolds. And it was actually it was a pretty amazing experience, actually. And, um, you know, in the freezing cold snow. Um, but, yeah. That's what it, that's what happened, mm. and it's certainly given me a new perspective on, um, or new old perspective on the notion of ceremony. And I think I've I've, I've mentioned um, Auntie Pua case from Mona Kia as someone that I has had a huge 
influence on me in terms of mana wahine, but ceremony is really big for her and her family and her people. And she sort of helped me to remember as well that that's actually who we are as well. Mm. And even though a lot of it's sort of been suppressed or taken away from us or we've forgotten, but it's still there and we can recreate or we can regenerate what that really means. Did it change or or help your perspective around other Indigenous cultures and how they interact with their colonisers? I suppose it's <laughs> the only way to say it. But, you know, when you look at... When you look at Hawaii and mm. when you look at our Native American whānau on Turtle Island um, in America, actually the response that they get when they stand up for their Indigenous rights is far more extreme than the response that we get when we stand up for our Indigenous rights. And it's not necessarily good or bad or better here than there, but I mean, what sort of what did you see and what did you learn in terms of the differences in how indigenous cultures in in places like America, um, what their struggles like in in comparison mm. to ours? It's it's hard to say because I was only there for a small window of time, in a very small, um, compact manner. Um, but you know the the whole the whole reality of having armed um, police, militarised police standing on a hill overlooking, looking down at you, holding guns was just disgusting. Mm. I just thought it was just the ultimate, um, the whole power control thing, just disturbing that they can stand there like that as if to say, your life is in my hand and I can at any time shoot you and have grounds to do that, you know. Mm. And so the fear, you know, what what it it did for me was I came home and realised how free I am, how free I am and how much freedom I have to use my voice, my body, and um, to be able to stand up and say, fuck you. You know, we're not going to put up with this or, I mean, New Zealand police aren't going to stand there. They're not going to shoot me, Mm. you know. I'm a free person. Whereas in America, um, I just felt so devastated to see how the abuse of the um, people in power over the Indigenous people who are just like you and I. You know, we're the same. We, we're just trying to get on and be the best guardians we can be of our natural environment. Um, and so you know, I come home and then I started feeling hoha because I felt like, man, there's so much happening here and we're not doing enough when we could do so much more. Mm. If we had 10,000 people all um, camping somewhere, well, boy, <laughs> what an impact that would have. <clears throat> yeah. You know? Yeah. So, but then again, that I think that also helped motivate me to go to do the the hikoi to Parliament because I thought, nah, all it takes is what have you got within you? Where's your drive? You know, use your voice the right ways. Um, you know, what's your motivations? Get smart about how you go about doing it. We can all impact change because 
in Aotearoa, we're only one degree removed or whatever. We actually all know each other mm. at the end of the day. You know, we know we our relationships are we, we're such a small country that in theory we should we should know someone who knows that person. Yeah. That we want to talk to. It's very small here. Very small. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so one thing that you that you have used as a tool for healing um is comedic yoga. Mm-hmm. Now <laughs> what is the difference between every other kind of yoga <laughs> yes and comedic yoga and how is it that you're like one of two people or something like that some small number like that who can actually teach it here um so comedic yoga i stumbled across when i was looking for um when i was looking to become certified in yoga i i tried bikram i tried um Iyengar, I tried tried going to all these different places and it felt like there were a whole lot of barriers to me being able to become an instructor. There's a whole lot of rules and conditions and they were sort of being put upon me by Pākehā men, to be honest. Mm. And I thought, ugh. So I started looking deeper and I thought, oh, something will come up. And then I found Pā Yusia, Yusia Rahotep, and he's the um, the founder, I guess, of um of what comedic yoga is today so and built the relationship with him um over time and so comedic what i love about comedic yoga is it's it's um it's derived from egypt africa and it's um it's 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 come come about from the research in the pyramids that pa did with one other um, karaua. So they, went, you know, they go to Egypt once, twice a year, but they researched the the pyramids, the hieroglyphics, the whole philosophies and concepts and worldviews of that reality, and then and could clearly see poses and positions drawn on the walls of the pyramids. And so a lot of our um, our poses are from that, yeah. So they're they're a, a modern day interpretation of of those particular poses, and so you won't see them in any other yoga style. But the overarching um, beauty of comedic yoga is that it's about breath and it's about geometric progression, and that's what I love about it. Um, and it's about self healing. And using the breath to in the energy channels, and it's it's nothing it's nothing kind of it's not airy fairy, you know what I mean? Mm. Like often you go to yoga and <laughs> no, not to I'm not, not thinking of anyone in particular, but just in my own experiences over the last thirty years of doing practicing yoga, is that often I find myself in these um, yoga spaces and I'm being taken on a walk through a park and there's nice trees and da 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 and there's all this visualization stuff and that's also a our version like the pakia won't well, say ours and pakia but our version our western version of what we've interpreted yoga to be exactly. to suit our needs yes. and, and hopes and wants <laughs> exactly well that's it yeah but there's this other the, what i love about comedic yoga is that it's where we actually take a, a walk, where we connect with our breath and we learn how to breathe properly. Mm. It's as simple as that mm. because actually we don't 
we don't breathe properly. We breathe too shallow. Yeah. <laughs> Even when you do kapaki, you're always told, hey, you're breathing out of your chest. I can see your shoulders moving. <laughs> yeah. You need to breathe out of your puku. Your shoulders should be still. We should see the puku go in and out. It's the exact same thing. Mm. But this is more a tool. It's when we begin to understand that when the breath comes down into the puku, then it's getting to all the internal organs, Choice. you know, and it's all that kind of stuff. So, but there's also, I went to Jamaica and I invited a friend, Hedi at the Amo. I asked her if she'd like to come and she said yes. So, her and I went and um, became certified, and that's why we were the only two. We've now got Natasha who went over, Natasha Hinari, she went over. Um, last year to Australia and became certified as well. So it's three of us and we're all Māori women. Sure. Yeah. And so people can find you um, on Facebook at Comedic Yoga with Nina K. Yes. So if they want to yep. get interested in learning more, that's where they can Definitely. they can find out. Um, I've got a last question, which, you know, I could just keep going all day. But... Um, <laughs> I feel, I feel like I say that to everyone. I could keep talking to you for hours because, awesome you know, it's <laughs> I get so inspired and so in the zone listening to these amazing stories as they all feed into each of our journeys and mm-hmm. whether we can directly relate or not, um, it all helps to, you know, it's that collective wisdom that all helps us all to um, be who we are and learn from others. So um, I really appreciate you sharing and sharing so honestly today as well. Um, my last question for you is what is your hope for the future of Indigenous women? Um, oh, wow. I think the main thing for me is it's, is is freedom. I always just sum it up in that word, one word, freedom, where we um, are free to stand we're free to use our voice we're free to love we're free to walk the streets um we're free to just basically exist however um in a positive healthy way that feeds our souls and therefore resonates outwards because you know women are powerful beings we we host the whare tangata we host the womb and therefore um, everyone's connected back to us through that. And so I, I just feel that uh, if we, if we that, that's my hope is that we can all f- feel freedom in our lives because it's a wonderful feeling. Mm. And um, really that's all that ever stops us from being able to, to be the best that we can be is not being able to feel freedom. Yeah. I would love for you to end us on one of your poems. This one's called Freedom. I am not a victim anymore. I won't be silent. I have a voice. I have a choice. I'll stand. I'm strong. I'm vibrant. There is no one, no thing, no place with power over me. I am not a victim anymore, for I am free. Kia ora. 